Book Three, Chapter Six of The Mermaid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremy Robertson. The Mermaid by Lily Dugall. Chapter Six. The Night is Dark. Caius went home to his house. Inconsistency is the hallmark of real in distinction from unreal life. A note of happy music was sounding in his heart. The bright spring evening seemed all full of joy. He saw a flock of gannets stringing out in long line against red evening sky, and knew that all the feathered population of the rocks was returning to its summer home. Something more than the mere joy of the season was making him glad. He hardly knew what it was, for it appeared to him that circumstances were untoward. It was in vain that he reasoned that there was no cause for joy in the belief that Josephine took delight in his society. The delight would only make her lot the harder and make for him the greater grievance. He might as well have reasoned with himself that there was no cause for joy in the fact of the spring. He was so created that such things made up the bliss of life to him. Caius did not himself think that Josephine owed any duty to Lemaitre. He could only hope and try to believe that the man was dead. Reason, common sense, appeared to him to do away with what slight moral or religious obligation was involved in such a marriage. Yet he was quite sure of one thing that this young wife, left without friend or protector, would have been upon a very much lower level if she had thought in the manner as he did. He knew now that from the first day he had seen her, the charm of her face had been that he read in it a character that was not only wholly different to, but nobler than, his own. He reflected now that he should not love her at all if she took a stand less high in its sweet unreasonableness, and his reason for this was simply that, had she done otherwise, she would not have been Josephine. The thought that Josephine was what she was intoxicated him. All the next daytime and eternity seemed glorious to him. The islands were still ringed with the pearly ring of ice flows, and for one brief spring day, for this lover, it was enough to be yet imprisoned in the same bit of green earth with his lady, to think of all the noble things she had said and done, and by her influence to see new vistas opening into eternity in which they two walked together. There was even some self-gratulation that he attained to faith in heaven, he was one of those people who always supposed that they would be glad to have faith if they could. It was not faith, however, that had come to him, only a refining and quickening of his imagination. Quick upon the heels of these high dreams came their test, for life is not a dream. Between the Magdalen Islands and the mainland, besides the many stray schooners that came and went, there were two lines of regular communication. One was by a sailing vessel, which carried freight regularly to and from the port of Gaspé. The other was by a small packet steamer that once a week came from Nova Scotia and Prince Edward's Island, and returned by the same route. It was by this steamer, on her first appearance, that Caius ought reasonably to return to his home. She would come as soon as the ice diminished. She would bring him news, withheld for four months, of how his parents had fared in his absence. Caius had not yet decided that he would go home by the first trip. The thought of leaving when it forced itself upon him was very painful. This steamer was the first arrival expected and the islanders, eager for variety in males, looked excitedly to see the ice melt or be drifted away. Caius looked at the ice ring with a more intense longing, but his longing was that it should remain. His wishes, like prayers, besought the cold winds and frosty nights to conserve it for him. It so happened that the Gaspé schooner arrived before the southern packet and lay outside of the ice, waiting until she could make her way through. So welcome was the sight that the islanders gathered upon the shores of the bay just for the pleasure of looking at her as she lay without the harbor. Caius looked at her, too, and with comparative indifference, for he rejoiced that he was still in prison. Upon that day, the night fell just as it falls upon all days, but at midnight Caius had a visitor. O'Shea came to him in the darkness. Caius was awakened from sound sleep by a muffled thumping at his door that was calculated to disturb him without carrying sharp sound into the surrounding air. 
His first idea was that some drunken fellow had blundered against his wall by mistake. As the sounds continued and the full strangeness of the event in that lonely place entered his waking brain, he arose with a certain trepidation akin to that which one feels at the thought of supernatural visitors, a feeling that was perhaps the result of some influence from the spirit of the man outside the door. For when he opened it and held his candle to O'Shea's face, he saw a look there that made him know certainly that something was wrong. O'Shea came in and shut the door behind him and went into the inner room and sat down on the foot of the bed. Caius followed, holding the candle, and inspected him again. "'Sit down, man,' O'Shea made an impatient gesture at the light. "'Get into bed, if you will. There's no hurry that I know of.' Caius stood, looking at the farmer, and such nervousness had come upon him that he was almost trembling with fear, without the slightest notion as yet of what he feared. "'In the name of heaven,' he began. "'Yes, heaven.' O'Shea spoke with hard, meditative inquiry. "'It's heaven she trusts in. What's heaven going to do for her, I'd like to know?' "'What is it?' The question now was hoarse and breathless. "'Well, I'll tell you what it is, if you'll give me time.' The tone was sarcastic. And you needn't spoil your beauty by catching your death of cold. Tain't necessary that I know of. There's things that are necessary. There's things that will be necessary in the next few days, but that ain't. For the first time, Caius did not resent the caustic manner. Its sharpness was turned now towards an impending fate, and to Caius O'Shea had come as to a friend in need. Mechanically, he sat in the middle of the small bed and huddled its blankets about him. The burly farmer, in fur coat and cap, sat in wooden-like stillness, but Caius was like a man in a fever, restless in his suspense. The candle, which he had put upon the floor, cast up a yellow light on all the scant furniture, on the two men, as they thus talked to each other, with pale, tense faces, and through distorted shadows high up on the wooden walls. Perhaps it was a relief to O'Shea to torture Caius some time with this suspense. At last, he said, he's in the schooner. Lemaitre, how do you know? Well, I'll tell you how I know. I told you there was no hurry. If he was long now in speaking, Caius did not know it. Upon his brain crowded thoughts and imaginations, wild plans for saving the woman he loved, wild unholy desires of revenge and a wild vision of misery in the background as yet a foreboding that the end might be submission to the worst pains of impotent despair o'shea had taken out a piece of paper but did not open it tain't an hour back i got this the skipper of the schooner and me know each other he's been bound over by me to let me know if that man ever set foot in his ship to come to this place and he's managed to get a lad off his ship in the night and across the ice and he brought me this lemaitre he's drunk lying in his bunk that's the way he's preparing to come ashore it may be one day, it may be two, before the schooner can get in. Lemaitre won't get off it till it's in the harbor. I guess that's about all there is to tell. O'Shea added this with grim abstinence from fiercer comment. Does she know? Caius' throat hardly gave voice to the words. No, she don't, and I don't know who is to tell her. I can't. I can do most things. He looked up round the walls and ceilings, as if hunting in his mind for other things he could not do. I'll not do that. Taint my line. My wife is down on her knees, mixing up prayers and crying at a great rate, and says I to her, You've been a-praying about this some years back. I'd like to know what good it's done. Get up and tell Madame the news. And says she that she couldn't, and she says that in the morning you're to tell her. O'Shea said his face in grim defiance of any sentiment of pity for Caius that might have suggested itself. Caius said nothing, but in a minute, grasping at the one straw of hope which he saw, What are you going to do? he asked. O'Shea smoothed out the letter he held. Well, you needn't speak so quick. It's just that there I thought we might have our considerations upon. I'm not above asking a voice of a gentleman of the world like yourself. I'm not above giving advice either. He sat looking vacantly before him with a grim smile upon his face. Caius saw that his mind was made up. What are you going to do? he asked again. At the same moment came the sharp consciousness upon him that he himself was a murderer, that he wanted to have Lemaitre murdered, and that his question meant that he was eager to be made privy to the plot, willing to abet it. Yet he did not feel wicked at all. Before his eyes was the face of Josephine lying asleep, unconscious and peaceful. He felt that he fought in a cause in which a saint might fight. 
What I may or may not do, said O'Shea, is neither here nor there just now. The first thing is what you're going to do. The schooner's out there to the northeast. The boat that's been used for the sealing is over here to the southwest. Now, there ain't no sense that I know of in being uncomfortable when it can be helped, or in putting ourselves about for a brute of a man who ain't worth it. It's plain enough what's the easy thing to do. Tomorrow morning you'll make out that you can't abide no longer staying in this dull hole and offer the skipper of one of them sealing boats fifty dollars to have the boat across the ice and take you to Soros. Then you will go up and talk plain common sense to Madame and tell her to put on her man's top coat she's worn before and skip out of this dirty fellow's clutches. There ain't nothing like being scared out of their wits from making women reasonable. It's about the only time they have their sense as far as I know. If she won't come, what then? Caius demanded hastily. My wife says that if you're not more of a fool than we take you for she'll go there was something in the mechanical repetition of what his wife had said that made caius suspect you don't think she'll go o'shea did not answer that is what you'll do anyway he said and you'll do it the best way you know how he sat upon the bed some time longer wrapped in grim reserve the candle guttered flared burned itself out the two men were together in the dark caius believed that if the first expedient failed and he felt it could not but fail murder was their only resource against what seemed to them intolerable evil o'shea got up Perhaps you think this gentleman that is coming has redeeming features about him. A fine edge of sarcasm was in his tone. Well, he ain't. Before we lost sight of him, I got word concerning him from one part of the world and another. If I haven't got the law of him, it's because he's too much of a sneak. He wasn't anything but a handsome sort of beast to begin with, and what with the drinking and the life he's led, he's grown into a sort of thing that had better go on all fours like Nebuchadnezzar than come nigh decent people on his hind legs. Why has he let her alone all these years? The speech was grimly dramatic. Why, just because, first place... I believe another woman had the upper hand of him. Second place, when he married Madame, it was the land and money her father had to leave to her that made him make that bargain. He hadn't that in him that would make him care for a white slip of a girl as she was then, and, anyway, he knew that the girl and the money would keep till he was sick of roving. It's as nasty a trick as could be that he served her, playing dead dog all these years and coming to catch her unawares. I tell you, the main thing he has on his mind is revenge for the letters she wrote him when she first got word of his tricks, and then, too, he's coming back to carouse on her money and the money she's made on his father's land that he never looked to himself. O'Shea stalked through the small dark rooms and went out, closing the outer door gently behind him. Caius sat still, wrapped in his blankets. He bowed his head upon his knees. The darkness was only the physical part of the blackness that closed over his spirits. There was only one light in this blackness. That was Josephine's face. Calm, he saw it. Touched with the look of devotion or mercy. Laughing and dimpled, he saw it. A thing at one with the sunshine and all the joy of the earth. And then he saw it change and grow pale with fear and repulsion and disgust. Around this one face that carried light with it, there were horrid shapes and sounds in the blackness of his mind. He had been a good man. He had preferred good to evil. Had it all been a farce? Was the thing that he was being driven to do now a thing of satanic prompting, and he himself corrupt? all the goodness which he had thought to be himself, only an organism, fair outside, that rotted inwardly? Or was this fear the result of false teaching, the prompting of an artificial conscience, and was the thing he wished to do now the wholesome and natural course to take, right in the sight of such deity as might be beyond the curtain of the unknown, the force who had set the natural laws of being in motion? Caius did not know. While his judgment was in suspense, he was beset by horrible fears. The fear that he might be driven to do a villainous deed, the greater fear that he should not accomplish it, the awful fear, rising above all else in his mind, of seeing Josephine overtaken by the horrible fate which menaced her, and he himself still alive to feel her misery and his own. No, rather than that he would kill himself the man. It was not the part that had been assigned to him, but if she would not save herself, it would be the noblest thing to do. Was he to allow O'Shea, with a wife and children, to involve himself in such dire trouble when he, who had no one dependent upon him, could do the deed and take what consequence might be? 
He felt a glow of moral worth like that which he had felt when he decided upon his mission to the island, greater, for in that his motives had been mixed and sordid, and in this his only object was to save lives that were of more worth than his own. Should he kill the man, he would hardly escape death, and even if he did, he could never look Josephine in the face again. Why not? Why, if this deed were so good, could he not, after the doing of it, go back to her and read gratitude in her eyes? Because Josephine's standard of right and wrong was different from his. What was her standard? His mind cried out an impatient answer. She believes it is better to suffer than to be happy. He did not believe that. He would settle this matter by his own light, and, by freeing her and saving her faithful friends, be cut off from her forever. It would be an easy thing to do, to go up to the man and put a knife in his heart, or shoot him like a dog. His whole being revolted from the thought. When the deed came before his eyes, it seemed to him that only in some dark, feverish imagination could he have dreamed of acting it out, that, of course, in plain common sense, that daylight of the mind, he could not will to do this. Then he thought again of the misery of the suffering wife, and he believed that, foreign as it was to his whole habit of life, he could do this, even this, to save her. Then again came over him the sickening dread that the old rules of right and wrong that he had been taught were the right guides after all, and that Josephine was right, and that he must submit. The very thought of submission made his soul rise up in a mad tempest of anger against such a moral law, against all who taught it, against the God who was supposed to ordain it, and so strong was the tempest of his wrath, and so weak was he, perplexed, wretched, that he would have been glad, even at the same moment, to have appealed to the God of his fathers, with whom he was quarreling for counsel and help. His quarrel was too fierce for that. His quarrel with God made trust, made mere belief even, impossible, and he was aware that it was not new, that it was only the culminating hour of a long rebellion. End of Book 3, Chapter 6, The Night is Dark Recording by Jeremy Robertson